So we're, we're in John chapter 5. We are in this section where Jesus is uh, giving a discourse to those Pharisees, those Sadducees who think that Jesus is blaspheming uh, God himself. And so they want to uh, take Jesus out of the picture. They want to put him on trial and they want to move him out of the spotlight. They want to discredit him. Uh, they want to dismiss him and they want to, to move along like all the other false messiahs that have happened in the last 400 years since the closing of the Old Testament canon in the book of Malachi. Because there have been many, there have been many false messiahs who have come and said, you know, I am the one, follow me. And Jesus has just made these um, incredible claims in John chapter 5 after uh, the healing uh, of the pool boy, the pool on the Sabbath. I mean, Jesus essentially says that I'm equal with God, that I do everything that the Father uh, wants me to do, you know, that I, I am honoring the Father. Truly, truly, you know, we talked about that last week, you know, we're truly, truly, amen, amen, uh, so be it most assuredly, verily, verily, however it's going to be translated in your Bibles. When you see that word 25 times in the Gospel of John, what John is saying is, uh, listen up, because Jesus is going to re reveal to you his um, Christology, his messianic uh, form. He's saying, like, I am the one that everybody's been waiting for. And so last week we looked at those, uh, again, those verily, verily, those amen, amen statements last week talking about Jesus' claims because he has a relationship with the Father and he has authority from the Father. And not only that, but he has authority to judge and Jesus will not only be the Savior of the world when we think about his first advent, but he will come in his second advent and he will judge the world. And he will judge the world with righteousness and that authority flows from the Father to him. And so the Jews... You know, the Pharisees, the leaders are listening to this and they're going, who does this guy think he is? Like this guy, we have to get rid of him right now. That's who Jesus uh, is saying who he is. Now, the question comes, uh, what evidence do you have to support the claims that you have? And so Jesus, uh, much like a, a trial lawyer, says, I'm going to actually bring forth witnesses to verify the truth of what I've said. So that you know that my words are true, that my actions are true, and that I, I come from heaven to you. So, uh, for all the lawyers out there, for all the lawyers out there, we see a trial occurring right now. Um, and really, it's a, it's, a, it's a trial of faith. Who do you believe? Who do you believe Jesus is? And that's a question that all of us need to answer. Let, let me share with you a story. Um, this, this happened like maybe 13, 14 years ago at this point. But uh, we were in, in Virginia and we were planting our church. And in the midst of planting the church, we were having visitors show up. And uh, we had this guy come in and his name was Rob. And Rob showed up at our church and he had uh, four kids with him. And his four kids came and, you know, we were a small church plant at that point, probably like maybe 70, 80 people uh, tops. And so when, when you're in a small church, you notice visitors right away, right? And like, you know, you just, you know, when you see visitors, you want to go up and, and meet them. So afterwards, I'm preaching. I notice this new family with all these four kids. And I go up and I meet Rob. And Rob is a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel. And he's there at a Joint Forces Command in Suffolk, Virginia. Uh, and he writes doctrine. So he's a very detailed guy. He's a combat engineer. He's seen multiple tours uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and he's a pretty broken guy. And in the midst of coming, he's with his wife, Lisa, and, and, and all of his kids. And, and I go up to Rob. And he's picking up his kids in the nursery. 
and I'm talking to Rob and I'm showing him around because we're meeting at a middle school and you know, we've turned a classroom in, into a nursery and we're talking about these things. And, and I'm just getting to know Rob a little bit. He lives in the same neighborhood that I'm living in. He just you know, um, moved to Smithfield um, from uh, Northern Virginia. And so here he is. And in the midst of talking to Rob, he elbows me and he says this to me. He says, you know, <laughs> I don't believe in any of this stuff. I said, come again? Like, you don't believe in a nursery? Like, you don't believe, like, where, like, what, 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 do, you, what do you mean? Like, he says, this whole Jesus thing, I'm not really sure, but, you know, it could be good for the kids. So that's why we came. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. I said, Rob, um, do you mind if, like, I would love to come over to your house and just talk with you about this, this Jesus thing? And he goes, Sure. He goes, now I'm going out of town. I'll be in Vegas next week with my kids and my wife and we might come back, but yeah, yeah, come on over and you know, we'll have something to drink and you know, it'll be a great time. And you can just tell me all about this Jesus thing. And I'm like, okay. Well, in the midst of that, you know, Rob, who's a, a very, very, you know, intelligent guy who writes doctrine for the Marine Corps, um, he, he begins to uh, look at the claims of Jesus. And what he had said was, you know, he said, you know, when I was in Afghanistan and Iraq, what I came to believe was I have so much built up anger and hatred towards um, people who were killing my troops. He goes, I've seen just the decimation of, of, of the human body and it is so destructive and I have great animosity towards people on the other side. And he goes, the only thing that might give credence to Christianity is that it's a message about love, not a message about hate. So let me try and, you know, use the same level of scrutiny with regard to the claims of Jesus and the Bible um, that I have used to be against the Bible. Let me see if I can do that. And really, um, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the story with, with Rob later, uh, or you may have already heard it and that's okay. But that's where we are in John chapter 5. Like, who is Jesus to you? The claims of Jesus, what he has done, who he is, and the authority he has, what do you believe about him? Well, John chapter 5, Jesus brings witnesses to his trial. So, hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I, ha I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, here are the witnesses that Jesus brings to see. Now, again, what is a witness? You know, a witness is an individual um, who, being present, personally sees or perceives a thing. A beholder, a spectator, an eyewitness. You know, a person that affords evidence. A person who gives a testimony. Um, now, as we come to Christianity, and one of the things that happened with Rob, as we begin to look at Scripture, as we begin to look at the miracles of, of who Jesus, uh, what Jesus did, and who Jesus was, um, Christianity is not a blind faith. It is not a blind faith. You know, we think about Lady Justice in a courtroom, and Lady Justice oftentimes has a scale in her hand and a blindfold over her face, right? Because we would say that justice is blind, that it does not have uh, predetermined, um, you know, um, preconceived notions, as it were. But the veracity of the Bible and the claims of Jesus are very based upon evidence. And so Jesus begins to bring about evidence to the Jews. Now, he brings a series of, of people, the first of which is he brings John the Baptist. Now, he alludes to the Father in heaven. He says that the Father is bearing witness about me, and that's the overarching umbrella. We'll get back to the Father uh, being the one who uh, gives testimony to Jesus. But the first one that he, he says is, let's talk about John the Baptist. He goes, now, I don't need to bring anybody forth for a witness, but I know that you Jews must have multiple witnesses in order to conclude that a person's um, eyewitness testimony is true or that what somebody says is true. And so Jesus brings forth John the Baptist. And, he, and look at what he says about John the Baptist in verse 33. He says, you sent to John, meaning that the Jews went to John and they said, hey, who are you? You know, you're, you're wearing camel's hair, you're, you're, you're eating wild locust and honey, but we seem to, it seems to be that you're a prophet. And in the midst of going to John, you know, John's message was a gospel of repentance. Repent, repent from your sins, repent from the evil that you're doing. And that would be something that the Jews could get on board with. And look at what he says in verse 33. He says, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In verse 35, he says, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice. That word is actually uh, the Greek word for revel. As, as it were, like, so when something happens and you go like, hey, this seems to be this, this spectacle that's occurring out in the wilderness and the people of God seem to be, you're repenting from their sins. Let's go and let's get behind that. And while he was saying things that they wanted to hear, they listened and they, they upheld him. William Barclay says, John was a pleasant sensation to be listened to as long as he said the things they liked and to be abandoned whenever he became awkward. The Jews were like so many people in churches today who, who only come to get something 
from the worship. If they enjoy the sermon or the music, they stay. But when the enjoyment runs out, they go. And Jesus, in contrast, says, I say these things to you that you may be saved. Another commentator, Richard Phillips, says, churches and preachers need to have the same approach to ministry that John the Baptist did. They ministered not to offer enjoyable spiritual experiences, but to save souls. For the Jews to enjoy John's witness while refusing its goal, faith in Jesus, was to condemn themselves before God. So what was the witness of John? What did John say? When Jesus approached John, what did John say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he not only says that in chapter 1, verse 29, but then he says the next day, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said again, Behold the Lamb of God. And again in John chapter 30, or John chapter 3, verse 30, he says this about Jesus when his disciples were worried that they were losing market share in the midst of the, um, um, you know, the, the religious worship. He said, John said about Jesus, He must increase and I must increase decrease. You see, the witness that John had regarding Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, and he is greater than, he is the one that we have been waiting for. But look at what it says about John. And again, John the Baptist is is really, he is an amazing figure within the scriptures. I mean, even Jesus says, um, as to man, no one is greater than John the Baptist. He says that in the book of Matthew. But notice what it says in verse 35 about John, that he was a burning and shining lamp. That was the witness and the testimony that he had regarding Jesus, a burning and shining lamp. Now, the the one part about the the burning part, now this is um, really convicting for me as I think about this, is, Lord, am I a burning and shining lamp? as a witness for you? Like, am I trying to, you know, give all that I am? Again, you know, when you, um, you know, we got candles going over here. If I preach long enough, the candles will eventually melt all the way down, right? Like, they are actually consuming themselves. Like, that's what candles do. Candles burn themselves up, right? Which means they give all that they are in burning so that they can give off light and they can give off heat, And what Jesus says regarding John, regarding his witness, is that he was a burning and shining lamp, meaning that the light that John gave off was so brilliant that people understood and they began to repent and actually began to follow Jesus because of what John said. Again, John said, I must decrease and he must increase. Now, later on in the first century, there were still people who were worshiping or pursuing the pathway of John the Baptist and that Christians had to come into contact with, and they would say, no, no, no. It's, John was always pointing to Jesus, not to himself. I mean, I think about that in my own life, and how often do I oftentimes point to myself, or do I point to something else? Or am I shining the lamp of the gospel of Jesus in a world that is very, very dark? Are we doing that? Are we uplifting the name of the Lord? Are we bringing forth the transforming power of the name of Jesus in every relationship we have? Are we burning ourselves out to be a lamp for light and heat for those who are perishing? 
I mean, I say that and I'm indicting myself, okay? Because I am consumed with what I like and want. Anybody else struggle with that? Well, come on over, because if you like what I like, I probably want to be your friend, right? If you would just consume yourself with all of my likes, everything would be right, right? Now, the world would be a wicked place. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful testimony that John has. But, but Jesus doesn't stop at calling just John the Baptist as a witness, because, I mean, there were those who were not going to receive John the Baptist. You know, they didn't like John the Baptist. I mean, he was, he was a hippie living out, you know, out there, you know, wearing weird clothes, you know, eating honey, you know, hanging out on Mass Street, you know, doing all these other things that he shouldn't have been doing, right? So the, here's what he says. He goes, but the testimony that I have in verse 36 is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So what I am doing bears witness. Now, what was Jesus doing? Now, in the Gospel of John, there, it's called um, sometimes the first part of the Gospel of John up through um, 1 through 11 is called the book of signs. And so what does he do? We've already seen this. In, in John chapter 2, he turns water into wine. And every time Jesus does a sign, it displays his authority. And, and the, the authority that Jesus has in the water into wine is he, he has the authority to take away the shame and turn shame into joy by turning water into wine, thereby relieving the bridegroom of the shame of, of really community um, derision. In John chapter 4, it's the healing of the official son. His divine power to save life is, is given to us in John chapter 4. In John chapter 5, we hear the pool boy miracle. And Jesus is, is saying that his, he has you know, saving power that the broken world is seeking. That which was broken, Jesus is restoring. We see in John 6, or we will next week, the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy hunger. In John chapter 6, we also see that he walks on water and that he is the Lord of all, exercising authority over nature. We see it in John chapter 9, the healing of a man born blind to give both sight spiritually and physically. And in John chapter 11, probably the greatest sign in the book of signs, we see Lazarus, where Jesus actually has the power to raise the dead. And all of those signs, those seven signs are pointing to the authority that Jesus has. Now, up until this point, he's only given them, you know, three signs, but he will get to other signs. And what he's saying is, look at what I've done. Look at the evidence for what I have done. And if you look at the evidence, you'll see that I come from the Father. Not only does John bear witness about me, that I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but now the, the miracles that I have given are also um, giving your truth to the claims that I make. Now, this is um, interesting as you know, people pursue the Bible and the miracles, we go, well, are the miracles really true? Can we really, really believe that these things happened? Well, there was a man named Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was a founder of the Harvard S School of Law. Um, who, and he wrote a three-volume treatise on law and evidence and that book, those three volumes, uh, I've been told, serve, uh, continue to serve as the foundation for legal practice in America today. Set out to he, he set out with this idea. So he write, writes these three volumes, and he writes these three volumes on the evidence that's needed to you know, really convict or you know, let someone run free. And so he takes this three-volume set of knowledge, and he set out to disprove Christianity. 
So he set out to disprove Christianity by applying his rules for evidence to the four Gospels. He ended up not refuting Christianity, but accepting the claims of Christ and becoming a Christian as he read the Gospels. He was especially persuaded by the way in which the disciples proclaimed to the entire ancient world the resurrection of Jesus, of which they claimed to be eyewitnesses, even at the cost of their own lives. And here's what he says. Simon Greenleaf said, Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. The laws of every country were against the teachings of the disciples. The interests and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, rilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet, this faith they zealously did propagate. And all these miseries they endured, undismayed, nay, rejoicing. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unblenching courage. It is therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truth they had have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead, and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. That's what one of the founders of the Harvard Law School said as he came to faith in Jesus, in an attempt to disprove Christianity. Now, not only does Jesus call as a witness his very works and the uh, the miracles that he had done, but then he goes into verse 37 and he says, I've called John, I've brought witnesses to bear about the the, uh, miracles that I've done. In verse 37, he says, let me call and talk about the Father. And the Father, the Father who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. So if you don't believe John the Baptist, you don't believe the miracles that I've done, what about God the Father? What has the Father said about me? Well, here's what God the Father has borne witness about him. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, we read about Jesus' baptism. And in the midst of Jesus' baptism, as Jesus, but Jesus said, um, as he was, uh, after he was baptized, and the Spirit of God descended like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this, meaning Jesus, is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The testimony of the Father at the baptism of Jesus was that he was a beloved son who pleased the Father. Not only does he reference Matthew chapter 3, but also the Father speaks for Jesus in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, it says this, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, you know, sometimes I I miss that. Do you notice that Peter is still speaking and that the only way that the Lord can speak is by interrupting Peter? You ever have that in your family where, like, somebody will just not give over the mic, and so you have to interrupt them? Notice that Peter does that. He's just carrying on. There's no telling what Peter might have said next when the Lord God of heaven interrupts him and says, 
This, meaning Jesus, is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's great that he says that to Peter, James, and John. He says, hey, Peter, you got one mouth and two ears. You know, try to put that into play here, right? Listen to him. You see, God the Father, in verse 37, also bears witness about him. And Jesus says, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So, so really what Jesus is doing is he's flipping the trial, and he's putting on trial the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. And he's asking them this question, does the word of God abide in you? Are you pursuing the Messiah that was really the, the answer to all of the questions? It was this great expectant um, waiting in the Old Testament of the Messiah. He goes, are you waiting for the Messiah? Because if you were and the word of God was dwelling in you, you would see that I am him and you would follow me. And the reason I'm saying these things, let me go back up. The reason I'm saying these things, I'm not trying to be harsh to you. But in verse 34 of John chapter 5, he says this, but I say these things so that you may be saved. It's actually a mercy to bring the truth to bear. But then he says, you know, not only does God the Father, not only does the miracles, not only does John the Baptist, but let me bring evidence as well. Let me bring evidence from the scriptures. In verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, one of the things that was true about the Jews in that day is the Jews believed this Um, that you could find life within the scriptures, that some of them link scripture and the memorization of the scriptures with salvation. It was about how much you memorized. You know, all of this combined to create misplaced enthusiasm and emphasis. The word used in the phrase, you diligently study the scriptures in verse 39 is a technical word for scribes like those who labored at uh, Qumran with such concentration and obsession. But tragically, although they always had their noses in the Bible, they seldom got beyond the paper and the ink. Amazing, isn't it? They got so caught up in actually the words and the ink of the scriptures that they missed the whole message. They missed it. There's um, R. Kent Hughes, um, a pastor from Chicago, said this regarding this particular thing and, and the Jews' myopic view of the Messiah. He says this, let me illustrate their problem. Imagine you are standing on the observation floor of the Sears Tower in Chicago. Anybody ever been there, the Sears Tower in Chicago? Um, you, you walk out there, they have these few places where you can actually stand where it's glass underneath you, and it's kind of scary you know, if you do it, and you kind of have to do it because otherwise you're just not brave, but you kind of feel like you have to, especially if you have small children with you. You're like, oh, there's, there's nothing. Like, oh, this is no big deal. This is no big deal. And you get out there, and you're like, yeah, this is no big deal. All right, I'm going to step back. You guys going up there. Um, here's what he said. 
He goes, when you are at the, uh, on the observation floor of the Sears Tower in Chicago and you're overlooking the city, the sun is going down in the west, the lights are coming on along Lake Michigan, you are drinking it all in and are caught up in what you are seeing when someone tugs on your cuff and you turn to see a little man standing next to you. He says, my, isn't this a wonderful window? Do you see how it is set in steel and how the glass is tinted? Then he unfolds his pocket knife and begins to scrape at a corner of the window saying, I'm going to do a chemical analysis of this window. And if you will give me your name and phone number, I'll call you and let you know what this window is made out of. Of course, we would think the man was a little strange. He missed the whole purpose of the window. The window was created to show the great beauty of the city and the surrounding scenery, but all he saw was the frame. The Bible is a wonderful window, but we must look through that window to see the beautiful realities of Christ and God. While we are committed to the need for a detailed study of the Word of God, it must not be done just for the sake of literary analysis, graphs, or statistics. The Bible is not an an end in itself, but is a window through which we can learn marvelous truths about God and Jesus Christ. Now, One of the issues that we see was that in verse 40, Jesus says, the scriptures talk about who I am and and what I've done, but you guys don't get it. Because in verse 40, it says this, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. Now, what Jesus is saying is, and, and really, when we think about the scriptures, Um, As we come to the scriptures, as we come to the word of God, and this is for application points for us, as we come to the scriptures, we need to come with, with an attitude that says, these are the words of God written for me. And we also need to come with a humble attitude which says, I am placing myself underneath the eternal truth of God, which is infallible and is inerrant. So we come with humility, we come with expectation, um, and we don't come with a personal agenda. You see, one of the things that the Jews were struggling with was they didn't want to give any honor to anyone else because that might reduce their honor. You see, they didn't have the same perspective that John the Baptist had, which was, may Jesus increase while I decrease. You see, the Jews were reading the Bible so that they might increase in the eyes of the world. Now, I don't think we have that problem today. (laughs) Within our communities, within our our, our work, wherever we are, I don't think that we're going to be given relational capital today because we know more and more of the Bible. But back then, they would. You see, they were so wrapped up in knowing more about the Bible that they missed the big picture. I pray that as we are in Bible study and we diligently study the Bible in in the women's ministry, in the men's ministry, within our small groups, that as we diligently study the Word of God and we do word studies and we understand the Word of God, that we would not miss the big picture. Again, the big picture here, okay, the big picture of, of, of the church is to bring glory to Jesus. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. So everything that we do should be pointing in his direction as he increases and we decrease. And may we repent of anything that gets in the way of the increasing of Jesus. 
There was a, a story that Richard Phillips in, in his commentary told. Uh, Richard Phillips, who's a pastor in the PCA in South Carolina, was once a college professor. And he was working with a, a college ministry at the college that he was at. And he said there was this one young man who was hand-delivered by his parents to this Christian ministry that Richard and his, um, his wife were helping lead in the, um, in, the, in, the, in the college. So the parents literally dropped this child off at the college ministry right? And the young man said, uh, let me introduce you to my son. And he said, yes, I am, and this is funny that he would say this. I don't, yeah. He said, I am the state champion for Bible memorization in my state. And Richard Phillips said, oh, that's kind of impressive. Well, what have you memorized? He goes, I just recently memorized the entire book of Hebrews, which is, I mean, that's, that's good, right? I mean, that's a good thing. And so Richard Phillips said to him, well, what, and let me, let me just read it so I don't, I don't butcher it. He said this um, to the, this young man, he says, um, impressed, I asked him what part of Hebrews' message about Jesus had most impacted his life. And this kid had just spent months memorizing the book of Hebrews. And the young man, the young man was stumped. In fact, he knew nothing of the message of Hebrews but it simply memorized all the words. And he goes, I was not surprised when he showed little commitment to Christianity in college and soon fell away into worldliness. You see, when you get just caught up in the ink and the words and you miss the message, it's kind of like you're missing the forest for the trees in front of you, right? Now, Jesus also goes on when he says that the scriptures also testify to me. I mean, he, he makes reference in this way. And, you know, let me just throw these out to you so you know them. You know, in Isaiah chapter 7, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin. You know, we see that fulfilled in Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, we see that the Son of Man is sold out for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. Later on, that, that happens. In Psalm chapter 34, we, we, we read that no, no bones were broken in the midst of the crucifixion, which was very unusual, and yet that is what happened for Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, we read that he was buried in a rich man's grave. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, the last one I'll quote, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. You know, and there's many, many more. When we, we read Micah today in the Old Testament reading that he was born in Bethlehem, all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. As a matter of fact, not only are the specific prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, but also the different types of individuals. You see, Jesus is a better Moses because Moses delivered the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage into the promised land. Jesus is better than Moses in that he delivers us out of our sin and leads us to an eternal heaven. You know, we see that David was a man after God's own heart, but he was a broken, flawed guy, right? David had all kinds of parenting issues with his children. And yet, he was the model of what a king should be in Israel. And we see that Jesus is the good king who subdues us to himself, who rules righteously, and will subdue all of our enemies, all of his and our enemies, to himself. You know, so whether it's Moses, whether it's um, David, we see that Jesus is the one that they're pointing to in typology. But we also see even in the midst of some of the, you know, grand, you know, construction things that happen in the book of Exodus, you know, the tabernacle, everything in the tabernacle, 
everything that the tabernacle, especially the furnishings in the tabernacle, the lampstand and Ark of the Covenant and the bronze basin of sacrifice and, and the incense altar, all of those things, what are they doing? They're all pointing to Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is the entire Old Testament, all 39 books of the Old Testament are pointing to me. They're pointing to me. What are you going to do with me right now? Because Jesus says in verse 40, after saying all of these things and and putting the Jews really back on their heels, he says, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Brothers and sisters, are we refusing to come to Jesus that we may have life? In verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from people. Jesus says, I gave you all these witnesses, and I don't want any other glory. I don't need the glory of witnesses or men. In verse 42, he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And yet if another comes in his own name you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? The thing that struck me in this passage here, it's, um, and I was, um, I was challenged by this. A couple weeks ago, I was in North Carolina with um, some other pastor friends, uh, and I get together with them. I've been doing it for about 14 years or so. And one of these guys, uh, I, was, I was describing um, a particular uh, person who's very dear to me, and, and I was really struggling, and I know that some of you have the same questions, um, and he asked the question, um, is he a believer? <laughs> Does he believe and trust in Jesus? And I, and I said, well, if you asked this individual if they believed in Jesus, they would say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And then he asked this question, but does he love Jesus? Because I could very easily say, yes, I think that he believes in Jesus. But then I went, I'm not sure he loves Jesus. I'm not sure that the faith that he has isn't similar to the faith that James talks about that the demons have. That they believe and shudder at the name of Jesus, but they have no affection in their heart. And as I thought about that, I mean, it really brought me to tears because what I want for this individual and what I want for all of you and what I want for myself is not that I would just believe, but that I would love Jesus. And I would love him so much that I would tell others about him. You see, brothers and sisters, what you cherish in your heart is what you will commend to others. You guys know this. New grandparents, there's only one thing they talk about. You know? It's their new grandbaby. Because what you cherish is what you commend. The thing that um, got me, as I think about, you know, back to the story about Rob, is um, two weeks later, Rob and I began to meet. 
And, uh, and we started to go through a book, and it was, you know, again, this is a number of years ago, and it was The Reason for God by Tim Keller. And so Rob began to read through this book, and Rob began to look at the claims of Jesus, and he began to, you know, really scrutinize his disbelief as much as he did my belief. And at the end of the day, I remember walking up to his door, and I remember walking up to his door, and I knocked on the door, um, and we'd been meeting for about 12 weeks, and, and Rob said, I'm ready. I'm like, okay, great, you're ready. What do you want to do? And he goes, I- I'm ready. How do I pray to receive Jesus? How do I know that I'm saved? Because I looked at the facts. I looked at the evidence. I looked at all the witnesses. And I scrutinized my unbelief with as much effort as I did your belief. And I came to the conclusion that there's no reason why I shouldn't believe. In that book, um, The Reason for God, Tim Keller, let me close with this story. He um, talks about, you know, that he would meet people in New York City all the time and they would say things like this. I see much of the Bible's teaching as historically inaccurate, said Charles, an investment banker. We can't be sure the Bible's account of events is what really happened. Or, um, I'm sure you're right. Charles answered Jacqueline, a woman working in finance, but my biggest problem with the Bible is that it is culturally obsolete. Much of the Bible's social teaching, for example, about women, is socially regressive. So it is impossible to accept the Bible as the complete authority Christians take, think it is. Um, he, Tim Keller goes on to say, you know, I, I, I see this all the time. And he goes on to recount this story, and, and again, for communion, I just, I love this story. Uh, some of you may, um, have known this woman named Anne Rice. Anne Rice was an author. Um, Anne Rice was a, one person who was startled to discover how weak uh, the case for a merely human historical Jesus really is. Rice became famous as the author of Interview with the Vampire and other works that could be called horror erotica. Raised a Catholic, she lost her faith at a secular college, married an atheist, and became wealthy writing novels about Lestat, who is both a vampire and a rock star. It shocked the literary and media world when Rice announced that she had returned to Christianity. Why did she go? In the afterword to her new novel, Christ the Lord Out of Egypt, she explained that she had begun doing extensive research about the historical Jesus by reading the work of Jesus scholars at the most respected academic institutions. Their main thesis was that the Bible documents we have aren't historically reliable. She was amazed at how weak their arguments were. Quote, this is what she says. Some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which had floated around the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. Brothers and sisters, if you're not sure who Jesus is, then let's, let's study, let's pursue, let's ask questions, and let's level the same amount of scrutiny to our unbelief as we do towards belief. And what is it that we believe? And what is it we believe about the gospel? 
This is what we believe. I mean, this is a picture of the gospel before us. You know, the gospel gives us these signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And what we find in the midst of, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 or, or the gospels is that, you know, Jesus Christ gave these signs and seals. In the Old Testament, they had the Passover. In the New Testament, we have this table. And this bread represents the body of Christ broken for you. And this cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as we think about and we come to this table, we are reminded that we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's hearkening back to Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement, when they would, they would take two um, you know, goats, and one would be the scapegoat, and the other would be this sacrifice of atonement that would be offered once a year. You see, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the only way that our sins are taken away. And that, and being in Christ, we are forgiven and loved. It is only in Christ. And all of his claims are true. His miracles attest to him. John the Baptist attested to him. The Father attested to him at his baptism and the transfiguration, and all the scriptures attest to the veracity of scripture. And at the very end of John chapter 5, he says this, and if you think that you're just talking and you're disciples of Moses, even Moses talked about me. Moses was awaiting the one who would bring about the salvation of not just the Jews, but of all the people. That is who Jesus is. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we know that this table is set for those who believe. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as you pour forth grace upon grace upon your people, that we would know that we are saved through the blood of the Lamb. And Father, that we would be a shining light, a burning light, like John the Baptist was to our world and to our families. So Father, help us. Help us to believe all the more. Strengthen our faith. Build our hope in Christ and in Christ alone. And Father, as we receive the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.